If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Mud, blood, trenches and futility. In Britain, we have a fairly set idea of what the First World War was all about. But just how much is this evocative image, in fact shaped by the creative writing of just a handful of men? In today's Everything You Want to Know episode, I was joined by Professor Katrina Pennell to discuss the work of the First World War poets, and also why we should broaden our horizons beyond Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon. As usual, the questions are a combination of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our social media channels. We're going to be discussing poetry about World War I today and a group of poets that have become known in Britain in the school curriculum and elsewhere, more generally as the war poets. So when we talk about the war poets, who are people generally referring to when they use that term? Um, I would say from a British perspective, uh, they are referring to the likes of Siegfried Sassoon um, and Wilfred Owen. Um, Siegfried Sassoon, one of his most famous poems is um, Suicide in the Trenches. Um, I knew a simple soldier boy who grinned at life in empty joy is the opening line that people are very familiar with. Wilfred Owen, of course, he died in the First World War um, just just, uh, a few days before the the armistice in November 1918. a decorum est is perhaps his most famous um, poem. But I would say there's also poems that people maybe don't know the authors of, but they are very familiar with the poem. So I'm thinking, for example, of um, In Flanders Fields by John McRae. Um, which, you know, people often think about when they're thinking about red poppies and, you know, the poppy fields and Flanders fields. Um, And also Lawrence Binion's um, For the Fallen, which 
people may not know the poet's name or maybe even the title of the poem, but they will know probably the phrase, they shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. And also the fourth stanza of that poem has, we will remember them, which is then, of course, adopted by the um, Imperial, now Commonwealth War Graves Commission to be on on many of the plinths in the CWGC um, uh, cemeteries and memorials. So if people were going to study a course on the war poets, what would some of the central themes be that emerge, the, the central characteristics and trends of these poems? Um, I think it's really tempting to think about First World War poetry as being quite a narrow set of, of, of themes. Um, most probably people would associate First World War poetry with um, a sense of futility, of pointlessness, a kind of anti-war sentiment. They would associate First World War poetry with um, the horrors of war, um, you know, the, the awful conditions, the mud, the, the, the rats, the lice. But I think it's really important that we remember that First World War poetry is so much more than that. I mean, it is a genre of creative writing. And like with any creative writing, there are all sorts of different approaches to it and, and different traditions that, that, that go with it. Just in the case of Britain and Ireland, there were about 2,000 poets who wrote poetry um, in the wartime period. And it's also important to remember that war poetry wasn't just written by male soldiers. It was also written by women. It was written by non-combatants. It was written by civilians. So whilst there are some really big themes that people are very familiar with, there's also lots of other themes, including um, a sense of adventure, a sense of positivity towards the war. There's also humorous poems. There's poems about female experience. So it's, it, that's a difficult question to answer. Hopefully we'll be able to kind of convey some of the, the variety and the diversity of that poetry as in our discussion today. Some of the headline figures you you mentioned there that people would be most familiar with, Sassoon and Owen, for example, they were soldiers who fought in the trenches. How significant is that in shaping their poetry? Obviously, it's it's absolutely central because um, these were men who were obviously of a creative disposition, but were heavily influenced by the environment and situation and context that they found themselves in. And, you know, really that is the central key of the poetry, the war poetry that is produced during the First World War, because what you see coming together is the poetic form with clashing with this historical trauma um, and this exposure to extreme violence and to conditions that people had never experienced before. But I think it's important to remember that that soldiers wrote poetry for many different reasons, aside from the combat experience itself. People do creative writing now for a number of different reasons. You know, the topic moves them, they want to express themselves, maybe they want to try and make some money, maybe they're bored, maybe they're just trying to pass the time, maybe they do have their sights set on a publishing career. So I think it's important that we think about all of these reasons as to why soldiers might, might write this type of poetry. And it's also important to remember, I think, that war poetry is not unique to the First World War. Um, people have been ex expressing their feelings about war through the poetic form since the time of the Greeks. But what's interesting about the First World War poets is that they are um, a recognisable literary genre. Um, you know, their combined voice has become one of the defining moments in 20th century literature. We've had a really interesting question on Instagram from Lily Thigau, who's asked... Who was the most popular poet at the time during the First World War? 
I think this is a really interesting question because most of the First World War poets that we are familiar with, like Sassoon, like Owen, became famous after the war. They became famous in the late 1920s um, when that, that, that sort of first generation of people who had experienced direct loss, the parents or siblings or uh, wives um, of those who had lost men in the war, as they began to fade away and that sense of criticising sacrifice became less contentious, you start to see this emergence of a literary genre that, that, you know, has been termed, amongst other things, the literature of disenchantment. And this isn't unique to Britain. You see it appearing across Europe and elsewhere. So the question of who is most famous at the time of the First World War is a really interesting one. I would, I would suggest probably someone like Rudyard Kipling. You know, if we remember that he wrote war poetry too, and he was also a very, very established literary figure in the pre-war period. So people would have been familiar with his writing, and because of his existing platform, he would have his poetry would have been published widely. So how would you characterize the poetry of Kipling that was so popular in this era? Well, I mean, he was he was a staunch patriot, staunch nationalist, um, staunch imperialist. Um, you know, one of his most famous poems is is you know the white man's burden. Um, he was very much in support of the war, particularly um, in in those those early years. I mean, he has a really interesting. Um, career and relationship with the war as it progresses. Obviously, he loses his beloved son, John. He goes on to write um, some official histories of the Irish regiments in the First World War. But yeah, his early poetry, I would describe as, you know, very much that kind of tub-thumping support of, of the war and support of the national cause. So as you say, it's not all about futility and loss. Not at all. Not at all, no. I mean, the, the, the themes that come through First World Poetry that is written at the time, that is published at the time, covers a lot of different themes, including, you know, humorous poems, um, silly poems, poems that are designed to keep morale and good spirits up. This, this The poetry of, of futility and disenchantment, that really is something that's after the war. Well, that leads us on very well to a question we've had on Facebook from Gordon Reed. Gordon has said, um, I'd like to know about First World War poetry that isn't of this serious, thoughtful kind that later generations learned about in school. Exactly what you're just saying there. Gordon wants to know about any poetry that was circulated among soldiers on the front lines that maybe soldiers themselves actually enjoyed. Yeah, so exactly. I mean, this is this is kind of the point I'm trying to make, that First World War poetry of the time was of a, of a great variety. And absolutely, soldiers would write poems, you know, humorous poems, satirical poems, silly poems for publication, particularly in outlets like trench newspapers. So they were trying to sort of entertain each other with their with their satire, with their their sharp observations about, um, you know, military life and and living in trenches. And these were often quite funny. They were often quite rude. um, And they were sometimes actually designed to uh, mock this kind of po-faced, miserable literature of um, how how awful the war was. Perhaps a, a most famous example would be someone like Woodbine Willie, who um, you know wrote satirical verse, uh, uh, published um, um, satirical material. You know, absolutely designed to keep spirits up. And and you know, it's a it's a a very central thing in in the human experience. You know, if you can't if you can't laugh at it, you'll cry at it. So try and laugh at it. You know, in order to in order to get through it. And I would suggest that 
there's probably an awful lot more of First World War poetry that is about things that are funny and silly and rude than there is about the mud and the awfulness. It's just we don't see it because the the futility poetry has come to dominate what we understand to be First World War poetry. And Stella on Twitter has asked whether there were any poets that used their poems to oppose their country. I think this this is a really interesting question. I don't think there were any poets that opposed their country. And I would also say that there were very few poets who even opposed the war itself. What what you see in terms of criticism is not anything anti-British or or necessarily anti-war in the sense that they want war to stop, but there is criticism over the way the war is being fought. So the most famous example of this is obviously Siegfried Sassoon, who in, um, he was wounded in April 1917, he was sent to England to recover, and in July 1917, under great personal physical and mental strain, he issued his now famous statement um, where he criticises those that he believes are unnecessarily prolonging the war. And this gets read out in the House of Commons and um, Sassoon is then sent to Craig Lockhart Hospital in in Edinburgh um, to be treated for what was then um, described as, as shell shock. But the point I'm trying to make here is that Sassoon fought in the war before he criticised it, and he went back to fight in the war after he criticised it. So, yes, there were people that were angry about the war, but it was more that they were angry with how it was being fought. And I would say there were there were very few people that expressed any anti-British or anti-patriotic sentiments. So that phrase, opposing your country, I would say that doesn't really exist in, in, in the poetry. There are interesting examples outside of Britain in terms of, of opposition to war. Henri, Henri Barbus, um, the, the French author of um, Le Fieu, uh, which was published during the war. There's a, an interesting review of, of, of that publication in the Times Literary Supplement in April 1917, where the reviewer John Middleton Murray says, if an Englishman hated war as much as Monsieur Barbus hates it, he would not only not write about it, he would almost certainly not take part in it. So I think what Middleton Murray is saying there is that, yes, there was a degree of dissatisfaction and criticism, but not to the extent of digging your heels in and saying, no more, we want this to stop with a a negotiated peace or a German victory. And on Facebook, Adam Stiles has asked, how much censorship did the government undertake of work done by First World War poets? Well, in regards to the act of writing itself, I would say very little, because we need to remember that these were poems that were being sketched out in notebooks, in diaries, in the trenches. And that kind of personal um, self-writing, life-writing was not uncommon. So in that sense, no, the poems were not censored because they weren't going any further than someone's personal notebook. By and large, soldiers were free to write and express themselves in their personal capacity however they wanted to. It gets a little bit trickier when you think about distribution. If poems were recorded in letters that were then distributed, sent elsewhere, that could have been subject to censorship, absolutely. Also, it gets a little bit more tricky when we think about publication. 
because, of course, many newspapers wanted the material of soldiers from the trenches. They wanted to be able to showcase to their readers firsthand what was happening in the war. And soldiers' poetry was one way of doing this. But that, of course, had to be okayed by the press censors. So what you see being published in the press is, is that that has been given the green light. We don't know what got turned down. But again, it comes back to this, this point that the vast majority of poetry that we are familiar with comes out after the war. Wilfred Owen's entire poetry is published posthumously after his death in 1918. So I think that's something to to bear in mind. The most critical voices don't appear during the war and therefore um, aren't subject to censorship. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There's a cyclical element to this. We're very familiar with the poetry because we read it at school and therefore we go back to it because it makes us feel something. It makes us feel something familiar. It echoes within us as a a poem or a set of poems that, that we know. We perhaps maybe even know certain lines from it. So it's just become sort of embedded within us so we we return to it because it's almost part of us and it's got this sort of nice familiarity to it this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If we are thinking about those more critical voices that are published, as you say, after the war has finished... We've got some questions about responses to this material at the time. So Betsy Newmark has asked what the public response to poems that questioned the war, like Wilfred Owens, were. And Joe Andrews has added that, you know, this generation, the First World War generation, is known as being very big on jingoism and patriotism. So so what effect did poetry have on national perceptions of war and heroism? So if I if I go to Joe Andrews' um, question first about about jingoism and and patriotism, I think it's again just important to underscore that um, soldier poets were not a homogenous group. They didn't think with one mind. Some poets of that generation were big into ideas of patriotism and and jingoism and others weren't. There were multiple ways of experiencing the war and of course people's feelings changed over time. In terms of the question around public responses to the poetry at the time, it's just really hard to know what sorts of poetry got read at the time. Owen wasn't popular, he wasn't even known during the war. Poems weren't weren't published until after his death. I would say though that Siegfried Sassoon's um, protest letter of 1917, now that caused a real stir. Um, there were absolutely public um, uh, responses to that, you know, it, 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 it 
rippled its way through British society, not least because it was read out in, in the House of Commons um, as, as sort of part of this, this protest. So the public would have been aware of that. It's it's difficult to say, really. I think people were aware of it. They were, they were aware, certainly by 1917, that the war was getting much harder. It was very, very difficult, that it had been going on for a very long time and that it could go on for an inter- indeterminable amount of time in the future. Um, but people did not react to Sassoon's protest enough to then call all-out stoppage of the war. I think the thing to add um, to this question of, of, of sort of responses to the to the poetry um, when that when that literature of disenchantment first started to come out, um, there was actually quite a deal of resistance to it um, from people who felt that it was um, tarnishing. Um, a sense of sacrifice that that those who had died had made, that it was sort of ungrateful and and um, inappropriate. Um, but there are also people like Cyril Falls, who was, um, he, you know, he was very big in terms of publishing official war histories and regimental histories. And, and he, you know, he got you know, really agitated by this poetry, saying that it was, you know, disgusting and terrible and awful. And he actually went at, went um, as far as to say it should be banned. And what you see happening then is the classic kind of exorcist effect, um, which is that, you know, once people are told that something shouldn't be read, they go out and read it. So it does it become popular because people are engaging with it as a genre and, and you know, feel that this is just capturing the very essence of what they've been searching for in terms of expression. Well, maybe, I'm sure there are many people that felt that way, but there are also people out there who are making it popular. They're buying it, they're reading it because they're like, oh, this is kind of naughty and wrong. And, you know, someone, someone's telling me I shouldn't read it, so therefore I should read it. Also, just because someone reads something doesn't mean they like it. Are sales figures a demonstration of people liking something? Yes, to an extent, but, you know, I've read some very popular books that are in the Waterstones um, top three bestsellers and not enjoyed them, but I still bought them and read them, you know. So obviously we have a big listenership outside of the UK and a lot of people have asked about poets outside of the UK. Jorn Eichhorn has asked what you could tell us about contributions by poets from the British colonies. I think this is a really, really important question because from the British perspective, there are, you know, a certain number of poets that um, are very well established in in the national curriculum. Um, And these tend to focus on poets from the UK and perhaps some parts of Europe to an extent. But we must remember, of course, that um, Britain was fighting in the First World War as an empire, just as France was, just as Germany was, just as Italy was. And, you know, Britain was absolutely reliant on its colonies um, for manpower, for food, for resources, for um, financial contribution. And also there is a cultural contribution that is that is often overlooked. A really um, interesting example um, of poetry from outside of, of Britain, but within the, the sort of British Empire, is by um, the female Indian poet, um, Sarojini Naidu, who was from um, a Bengali Brahim family. Um, she was um, born in India, but actually educated in uh, King, at King's College London and in, in Cambridge. And she was sort of a protege of some of the um, great Victorian um, um, literary uh, figures, Edmund Goss and, and Arthur Simmons. And she later went on to, to meet Gandhi, um, and she was very involved in, in um, suffragette and nationalist politics. 
One of her most famous poems written during the First World War is called The Gift of India. And the poem is is, um, spoken from the perspective of India, that the poet voices is very angry and, and, and very sad at the way that Indian men have been used by the coloniser, by Britain, to fight the war. Um, And the poem ends with a demand that Indian sacrifice is remembered equally to that of the sacrifice of other members, i.e. white men of the British army. And it's a really interesting, clever poem because she's using the very traditional British techniques of rhyming couplets and iambic pentameter that she's obviously crafted under her mentorship of, of Goss and Simmons, but she's using it against the British. She's using it to point out how grateful and unfeeling India's colonizers are. So another really interesting example that I would you know encourage your listeners to be thinking about is not specifically within the British it's not a British colony but is but is part of the British world it's part of the United Kingdom at the time of the First World War and that is Ireland. Some of the most famous war poets that that we know of actually didn't come from the British mainland for want of a better term but came from Ireland and came from parts of Ireland that are now the Republic of Ireland. Francis Ledwidge is a, is a really good example. He originated from, from County Meath, just outside of Dublin. Another really excellent example is, is Thomas Kettle, who was actually an Irish nationalist um, MP uh, and, and signed up to, to, to serve in the First World War um, and, and produced some, some very, very... He, he was already a poet and he produced some very beautiful poetry um, based on his experiences. He was actually killed um, at the Somme in, in 1916. We've had actually a lot of questions in about um, poets from other nations. So Padadoz and Jane Ellsmore have both asked about um, poets from Germany and France. And Francis Aston on Facebook has asked about um, whether the Central Powers and Russia had a similar culture of war poetry. Absolutely. There were soldiers that took a literary approach to their experience and the war in all armies. You know, like I said earlier, Poetry uh, as a response to war was nothing new and it was not unique to Britain. Some of these responses were um, recorded as poetry, some were recorded as as prose. Um, In France, as in other European countries, there was a huge creative response. Alain Fournier, um, that was his pseudonym, his real name was Henri Alban Fournier, was a French author and soldier. Um, And he actually died fighting in September 1914, aged 27. Most of his writing was was published posthumously. Um, Perhaps his most famous volume of poems and essays was called Miracles, and that didn't come out until 1927. So another famous French example um, was the um, poet Guillaume Apollonière, who was perhaps the only French poet um, known in the English-speaking world, because not many French poets, or in fact poetry written in other languages, was translated into English. But but his work was, um, although it wasn't translated into English until some time after the war, he died during the Spanish flu um, in 1918, but that was two years after he'd been wounded. Um, so the French government actually said he could be declared um, mort pour la France, dead for, the Fran- dead for France. He was, you know, counted as sort of official war dead. He's a really interesting poet in the sense that he uses calligrams 
as as his form. Um, so his volume, Calligrams, Poems of Peace and War, 1913 to 1916, which was published in 1918 after his death, is noted for its typeface and spatial arrangement of words that form pictures that are just as important as the poetry that, that he's written. And it's really, really beautiful. There are a number of scholars who have published on um, French poetry and and poetry from outside of Britain. Ian Higgins has has published a volume, if your listeners are interested, on French poems of the Great War. A colleague of mine, Julia Ribeiro-Tomas, is a PhD student at the um, Université Paris-Nanterre, and she's working on French poetry during the Great War. Tim Cross has edited an anthology of international writers, poets and playwrights of the war, suitably entitled Lost Voices of World War One. And that volume includes around 60 writers, poets and, and prose from every combatant nation, including um, what, what is now Hungary, the Czech Republic and Germany. There's some really interesting scholarship coming out um, on Turkish poetry of the First World War and how it um, formed part of a, a national literature that was, was all about developing a sense of Turkish identity in the aftermath of the Turkish revolution, of, of the Young Turk Revolution of 1908. Um, I've got a PhD student, Rebecca Johnston, who's working on African-American poets of the First World War. So this is a really, really important emerging area. And I cannot stress um, strongly enough to your listeners that there is a whole world of First World War poetry out there that goes beyond the sort of canon of Owen and Sassoon and Graves and Blunden and all the names that we're very familiar with. Um, and it's just really exciting how the kind of overall move movement within the history of the First World War to explore the history and experience of the war beyond Europe beyond the trenches, uh, beyond the sort of um, metropole, is is perhaps the most um, fast emerging and exciting and, and cutting edge area of research at the moment. And that applies to cultural outputs and cultural experience and poetry and all of those things that your listeners are interested in. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations. So, as you say, taking us beyond the trenches, a question that we've had in from Jodie Kerslake is whether there were any female war poets, as you've mentioned a couple already, but I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about them, or poets reflecting on civilian experiences. Yeah, there were absolutely female poets. And, you know, again, this kind of um, national obsession we have in Britain of only focusing on this handful of, of, of men means that those those names are, are often um, not recognised or not recognised, um, you know, outside of kind of scholarly circles. But someone like Vera Britton is probably a name familiar to your listeners. Um she she uh, obviously served in the First World War in terms of um, she was a member of the Voluntary Aid Detachment. She served as a nurse. She published her memoirs of, of her First World War experiences, mainly her experiences of loss. She lost her fiancé, Roland. She also lost her brother. She lost two of her brother's friends um, in the war. Um, but she also wrote poetry. Um, and in fact, one of her one of her poems is all about her experiences of being a VAD. Um, so it gives you that kind of female, non-combatant, but still very heavily involved perspective of, of the conflict. But there's also Margaret Postgate Cole, Rose Macaulay. Those are those are some of the, the names that I would encourage your listeners to, to look up and, and, and find out more about. I think that the war poets, maybe this the small contingent of war poets, has really, really shaped the way in which 
the First World War has been seen in the decades since and still shapes it today. So we've had a few questions in about that. Marina's asked, why are Sassoon and Owen the most famous today? And Samuel A. Mills has also asked, why has Wilfred Owen become so well known when other war poets haven't? I think this is a really important set of questions and there are a number of different answers to this question. In part, it's because, like I've mentioned already, this this poetry, it was kind of put on a pedestal very early as capturing the essence of what it was like to, to have fought in the war. And a kind of mythology built up around it. It was a sort of self-perpetuating um, mythology um, that, that, that built up around it that was then added to by the fact that um, these poems became a really integral part of English literature and the way English literature was taught in this country from the 1960s onwards. So that's that's a really important reason, is that the, the poetry um, became part of the way people in this country were introduced to the war. But I think the, the fact that we that we keep coming back to these poets, there's a cyclical element to this. We're very familiar with the poetry because we read it at school and therefore we go back to it because it, it makes us feel something. It makes us feel something familiar. It echoes within us as a, a, a poem or a set of poems that, that we know. We perhaps maybe even know certain lines from it. So it's just become sort of embedded within us. So we we return to it because it's almost part of us and it's got this sort of nice familiarity to it. I think as well on a sort of broader level, this poetry has become part of who we are as a as a nation. It's part of what we've grown up with, it's part of what we associate as being British. Um, and I think the way that we read Owen and Sassoon's poetry and the way we we revere it, you know, we we sort of worship it in a way, says something about who we are and what we want to be as a nation. I think at heart, the British people see themselves as a very literary, poetic people that stand on some kind of moral high ground when it comes to knowing what is wrong and what is awful and what is horrible. I think in some ways people go back to this poetry um, because in a way it makes us feel a bit better in the sense that we can see now through this medium how awful that experience was. And by reading this poetry and by recognising how awful war was and is, we are in some ways making safe and, and, and sort of proofing ourselves from ever getting into that mess ourselves. It's sort of this luxury of hindsight position, even though, of course, wars are going on around us all the time. So I, I think there's something very interesting going on there about nationhood and about the psychology of national identity that um, means that we return to this poetry over and over again because it kind of reassures us that we won't make those silly mistakes ourselves. But of course we are and we still do. And what impact do you think that this has on our view of history? Do you think it's distorted our view of the First World War or perhaps oversimplified it? I, I think I think both of those things, yeah. I think this this handful of, of, of poets that um, emphasise things like, you know, death, loss, mud, sadness, they have come to um, overshadow any other expressions that existed at the time of the war um, in terms of reactions to war and experiences of war. 
But it's important to remember it's not the poet's or the poetry's fault. Owen and Sassoon didn't set out to be the universal voice of First World War experience. They set out to write poetry for a whole host of reasons, um, as as we've explored already. Um, And a lot of it was very, very personal. What has happened is that over the course of the hundred years that has passed since the end of the First World War, we as a nation have adopted this narrow view of the war as being the dominant narrative of what the First World War was about. I think there's an opportunity for that to begin to shift as we see um, scholarship being published that is taking us beyond the trenches, it's taking us beyond male combatant experience, and it's taking us, most importantly, beyond Britain and beyond Europe. So I'd like to finish today's conversation by just asking you whether you could share a poem that you personally think encapsulates the experience of World War One really well? I thought this was a brilliant question because there is no single poem that can encapsulate the experience of the First World War. And that's really, you know, the headline of this podcast. If there was a poem on how boring the experience of the war was, then, then I would choose that one because in my mind, that is the fundamental experience of the First World War, was was just being bored for a lot of the time. And I I don't mean that facetiously, and I don't mean to underestimate, you know, the the very real and and, and very horrific experiences of the war. But those were not the dominant, that, that wasn't the experience all of the time. If that had been the case, I think the war would have been over a lot sooner. So if there was a poem, which I'm afraid I can't think of, but if your listeners know of a poem that encapsulates boredom, then I think I would choose that one. In terms of a poem that is a personal favourite of mine that your listeners might not be familiar with, and I realise I'm being very indulgent here and slightly twisting the question, but it would be Thomas Kettle's To My Daughter Betty. In wiser days, my darling rosebud blown, to beauty proud as was your mother's prime. In that desired, delayed, incredible time, you'll ask why I abandoned you, my own, and the dear heart that was your baby throne to die with death. And oh, they'll give you rhyme and reason, some will call the thing sublime, and some decry it in a knowing tone. So here, while the mad guns curse overhead, and tired men sigh with mud for couch and floor, know that we fools, now with the foolish dead, died not for flag, nor king, nor emperor, but for a dream, born in a herdsman's shed, and for the secret scripture of the poor. And that was written four days before his death in in action in 1916. It's a really beautiful poem, but also I think he's a really interesting character. I've mentioned him already. He was an Irish nationalist. He was a poet. He was a politician. He was a soldier. He was born in, in County Dublin. And he believed that the First World War and his contribution to the First World War and the contribution of his fellow Irish men and women would be a pathway towards independence after the war. So he was of that generation of Irish nationalists that believed that you could work within the imperial construct in order to gain further independence and to gain sort of dominion status. And of course, your listeners will be familiar with the fact that that, uh, uh, through the very experience of the war, that type of nationalism evolved into a much more uh, violent nationalism with the Easter Rising of of April 1916, etc. But Kettle is is just a really interesting example. And of course, he's killed um, at the Battle of the Somme 
in September 1916. His work is is published after his death. But yeah, to my to my daughter Betty, I just think is a, a really beautiful poem. And at the end of the day, I'm not a literary scholar. I'm a historian. And I'm interested in people's stories and I'm interested in the lives of those who lived before us. And in my mind, the poetry is interesting and is absolutely valid source material. But for me, it's the way it leads us into the lives of the individual that wrote that poetry that is fascinating to me. Um, so I'm, I'm less sort of caught up in the poems. I'm more interested in the poet and what that can tell us about their journey through war, their perspective, their experiences. And the more of those individuals that we know about, the more multi, um, the more perspectives we will have of the war. And, and that will only serve to destabilise any notion of there being one single war experience. That was Professor Katrina Pennell. We love receiving your questions for these episodes, so if you'd like to submit one of your own for a future episode, follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany College.